Now, look, if you've been following our series in the book of Luke, as we've been looking at the, uh, the, the beginning of the Jesus' human life, uh, you may well have been, I think, hopefully impressed up to this point, but impressed by the careful, responsible way in which Luke has assembled the facts. It's clear the kind of deep research that must lie behind the writing that we are reading. Uh, I think it's quite clear that he's got in contact with some first-hand sources. I think as it, as it unfolds, actually, I don't know if I've said this out loud, but I, my, my feeling is he's most likely interviewed or got in touch with Mary herself. I don't think he'd have access to some of the data and the details he has unless he had spoken directly to her. What we're seeing here is careful, meticulous, historical research. Luke's gospel, it is not, is it, once off in a faraway galaxy or on a dark and stormy night. Well, it, this is history. In real people, with real people in real time, carefully investigated, then responsibly recorded. Is it extraordinary history? Well, absolutely, it's extraordinary. But it is history. However, one of the things I want you to see this morning is it's one thing to believe the remarkable birth story of Jesus and it actually happened. It's one thing to believe that. But it's another thing entirely to then answer the so what question, which is, uh, well, so what does it mean for me? What difference really does this make to me? Of course, that actually shouldn't be the first question you ever ask. Uh, I think it's quite selfish and have a self-centred view of the universe to think that, well, things only matter if they matter to me and that if they don't make a difference to me, they don't really matter. That, that's a very uh, it's a ridiculous view of the world, actually. There are very important things that don't touch your life at all and they are of great importance. But having said that, it is worth pondering, what, do, what does it matter? these things that Luke have recorded for us that, that have actually happened? What does it matter to me? Would my life be any different if they didn't happen? And on, a, on an AGM Sunday for us as a church family together, it's worth us pondering really not just as individuals but as a church family, what does it matter to us together as, as a church, as Wagger Evangelical Church? What difference does this all make? Now, I'm hoping as, you, as we've gone through the start of Luke, you've already got a hunch and seen, oh, an extraordinary difference. Absolutely. But there are significant things here in this passage today that really life would not it would be radically different if it, well, if it didn't happen. So come with me to Luke, and Luke chapter 3, where you've got it open there. I want to draw your attention actually to the start of the chapter. Uh, some of the ground that Tim uh, covered a little bit last week. Uh, I just want to go back there because I want you to see that this is where the action begins in Luke. It's a funny place to be ending our series in some ways. The first few chapters that we've looked closely at, the birth story of Jesus and John the Baptist, in many ways is the prelude to the action beginning. But you can tell the action begins because look how Luke starts chapter 3. Look at what he writes here. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iteria, and Traconius, that's and Lysanasus, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord and other... Can you notice how Luke, at this moment in, the, in his account, goes to great detail to show you precisely the time and the date when the, next, when the action's about to begin? It's, not, it's now no longer the reign of Caesar Augustus, now it's the reign of Caesar Tiberius. 
and so and so was governor over here, and X, Y, and Z was governor over there, and the high priests were these particular people. Point by point, what Luke is doing is detailing the whole international scene. Because he is about to tell you events and action that affects the whole international scene. And as he lays down the international scene, he then brings John the Baptist to our attention. And John the Baptist goes public. He's now an older, he's now a man. And he's out there baptizing people. And he's calling upon people to change their minds. He used that word to repent. And it's it's not just the odd individual that John is out there calling to repent. If you've been reading Luke properly, you'd realise that he's calling, well, this is a moment of international significance. He is calling upon a whole nation to repent. And so many, many people go out to him repenting and being baptised. And today, we saw that action last week, and as the action unfolds today, Luke brings us to the moment where Jesus now goes public. And as he goes public, it is a very odd start. Very, very odd start. An amazing start, yes, but an odd start. Look at how, how he goes public in chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21, it said, When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Now, the oddness here, which many of our Bible study groups would have seen this week, the oddness is... Well, why does Jesus come to get baptised? That's an oddity. Particularly if you can remember why John was baptising in the first place. Because back in verse 3 of this chapter, we get told that John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is, when people came to John to be baptised by him, they were saying, hey, John, I'm going to put my hand up. I'm a sinner. John, I need repentance. I need to repent. And I need, to, I need forgiveness. And I'm coming, hearing your call, to come and cry out to God for forgiveness. John made it very clear. That's what was going on in his ministry. And so people were coming to him to be baptised and they were, they were publicly saying, yes, it's me. I am a sinner. Now, do you see why it's odd that Jesus arrives and when he goes public, the first public thing he does is come and join in with those people? It's very odd, isn't it? Because, well, what, what did he have to repent of? I mean, was he going in the wrong direction? That meant he had to turn around and change? Did he have to change his mind about things? When have you been reading Luke's account already? Not just in Luke's account to this far, but even beyond that and in through the whole New Testament. Luke is at pains, God is at pains to show us that Jesus is perfect. That he is the blameless, never sinning son of God. The whole, the whole New Testament confirms this. And so what was Jesus doing if he had nothing to repent of? Coming and being baptised by John who's doing a baptism of repentance. Well, of course, what he was doing was identifying with them. And he wasn't just identifying with those people. He was identifying with you and with me. 
Because what I want, to rec- I want you to see and recognise in a significant way is that you and I stand in very much the same position as all those people who were coming out to John in a desert. You know, I know they were Israelites and most of us are not Israelites. I know they lived in the first century and we live in the 21st century. I know there's lots of differences. But they were standing there saying, I'm a sinner. And I want to underline for you today that for every single one of us here, if you know anything about yourself, if you know anything all, at all about yourself, anything about the truth about yourself, when asked, you will say, yeah, that's me too. Put my hand up. I'm a sinner. And so here was his great crowd of sinners, a great crowd of people just like us, sinners like us, and Jesus came and identified with them. And of course, as he was being baptised, it was was an acknowledgement of sin, of course not his own sin, but he was acknowledging and identifying with the sins of the people who were there. He was identifying with you and me and your sin and my sin. And one of the reasons we can get muddled here about why did Jesus come to get baptised is because we so often think about individuals, that John was just calling individuals because individuals had sin and individuals need to repent, and of course that's true, but there's an international significance here. He came to call a nation. And Jesus was born into that nation. And he identified himself with that sinful nation and he was coming to save them. It makes sense of those words that we read in Isaiah 53, if you know that passage, it talks about, so he could be numbered with the transgressors. And when you notice all that, you can see his baptism is not a normal baptism. It's actually confirmed then with the words that, 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 that accompanied his baptism that came from heaven. Look at verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21. It says, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven came saying, You are my son. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the uh, phenomenon was when the, it says there that uh, heaven was opened. I don't know exactly what that looked like, but there was a clear and obvious communication between heaven, between God and the earth. The first part of that was this, uh, the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. I don't know if that went, you know how doves hover? You know, they've got the wings flapping. I don't know if it was the hovering kind of, or it landed on his shoulder. Depends on kind of what kid's book you read, how you imagine it in some ways. But how you imagine it, it's neither here nor there. The reality is the Holy Spirit of God, which is God himself, the Holy Breath of God came down on Jesus. And then there was that voice, you are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. And even that statement, as you just kind of, just even if you, even if you gloss over it, you can tell this is God actually saying to us, it's clear that Jesus had nothing to repent of. This is my son. With him, I'm partially, partially pleased. With him, I think he's a little bit okay. No, no, the voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son. With him, I am well pleased. Nothing to repent of. But those words from heaven, they're not accidental words. They're not kind of God had a spur of the moment, saw Jesus, his son getting baptised, and thought, oh no, I'm going to say some words here, and opened up and just kind of blurted out the first thing that came to his mind. It's not that. These are loaded words. And they're very loaded because they're actually quoting from the Old Testament. 
The first one where God says, two, uh, two, two distinct parts of the Old Testament actually. The first one where he says, you are my son, is a direct quote from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And the importance of that is Psalm 2 is, is one of the great psalms. In fact, held by many to be the, the great psalm. Uh, in Psalm 2, an expectation is set up. It's one of those prophetic expectation moments where God talks about a king, about the sending of a king, and not just any king. Now, this is that time where he'll be a king over other kings. It's where we get that kind of language, the king of kings and the lord of lords from. And this king, God says, will be my son. And in that psalm, it actually speaks of this moment where the psalm starts off with the, the, the peoples or the nations around conspiring together to go, we go, we're sick of God. We don't want God. We're big enough to take him on. They think they can take on God and his, his Messiah and win. And they conspire together. And Psalm 2 reveals to us that God's response to that is to laugh. It's actually one of those funny moments in the Bible. Funny moments in the Bible that actually, you know, don't get many verses in the Bible telling you that God laughs. Now, here is one of them. And then his laughter, he, he, he's kind of going, these puny nations, they think they're going to take me on? They think, and it'll be on the screen if you, if, if you might have gone there yourself, but in Psalm 2 verse 4, here is where we read it. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And here is his classic, absolute classic Old Testament expectation of the Christ or the Messiah. Because this is the royal psalm in the book of Psalms. See, Psalm 1, if you go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 1 is kind of like an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. It's a prelude. Psalm 2 is where the action begins. And Psalm 2 is actually at the very heart of the theme of what the whole book of Psalms is all about. Of the psalm of David's greatest son who would come and be the Christ who would rule over all nations for all time. Psalm 2 is not just a random any one of the psalms, any one of the 150 psalms. Psalm 2 is the pivotal psalm of the whole book of Psalms. There is one coming. He will be the King of Kings. This is my son. And now Jesus at his baptism, identifying with the people, and a voice from heaven says, This. This one being baptised, this is my son. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords who will rule nations for all time. Even those who rebel against him, he will rule over them. He is a God-appointed ruler of all things. And so this is an extraordinary moment. We miss it because you know, we're familiar with it. We, we, we miss it because, remember, David lived a thousand years before Jesus came. It's a long time. And the book of Psalms was like the hymn book of the Old Testament. And so they sung the Psalms. For a thousand years, they've been singing Psalm 2. Now, a thousand years is a long time. Try to think, in our history that you're familiar with, depending on what happened a thousand years ago that you're aware of? And maybe the most obvious thing is in 1066, there was something called the Battle of Hastings. But most of you are probably going, I can't even remember that. It's a long time. 
They've been singing for a thousand years this kind of song. And now, in the midst of the baptism, a dove comes down and, a, and the heavens open up and a word comes to say, This is my son. The one, a thousand years of expectation had just arrived. It really, really is extraordinary. But if you think that's extraordinary, the next bit is astonishing. Because then the voice from heaven adds, with you, I am well pleased. Now this part of it is out of the blue. This part really is from left field. This part in many ways is shocking and completely unexpected. Because the words with you, I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42 and verse 1. And friends, here is our problem, isn't it? Uh, We don't know our Bibles well enough. Biblical literacy has gone down. And so some of you are sitting here and they hear me saying, this is quoting Isaiah 42. And some of you are going, wow, I hadn't realised that this... Of course it is. And others of you are going, Isaiah? I I think that's in the Old Testament. Uh, Does it have 40 chapters? I didn't even know it had 40 chapters. Wow, it's a big book. And that's what you're thinking. Uh, And so you don't understand what's being said here. Now, in Isaiah 42, what is happening at this point in that prophecy is it it is the commencements of a series of songs in that part of Isaiah that go from about 40 to chapter 60. A series of songs about a servant, an unnamed servant. One who is called the servant of the Lord, but a servant who will suffer so much that he gets called the suffering servant. Uh, This is not about the king, but about a servant. This is not about a conquering ruler, but a sufferer. An unnamed sufferer. He, he, he will be like the Messiah in that he will be anointed with God's spirit. He will be like the Messiah in that he will bring justice to the nations. But he is a servant. I mean, have a look on the screen. Here, here's where it's quoted. Isaiah 42 verse 1. It says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Hope you can see the link here. At the baptism there, this is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. And here you've got, here is my servant in whom I delight. That's the, that's the link there, but it's beyond just those words of well pleased and delight. You notice here, as soon as he says in whom I delight here in Isaiah 42, I will put my spirit on him. But back in Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends in bodily form like a dove. The connection, I don't think, could be any clearer. And it is this suffering servant in Isaiah that Isaiah makes clear who will be the one that will bring justice to the nations. And he doesn't do it by being the mighty, powerful king of kings and lord of lords, ruling the nations and having them all sit at his feet. Rather, how will he do it? We'll read on in Isaiah 42, verse 2. It says, He will not cry out, uh, shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. 
he's not going to do it by force. In fact, as the songs go on about this servant, you learn more and more that he will do it by suffering. And suffering terribly. And so come with me in your Bibles if you've got them open. It'll be on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles open, please go there to the very climax of these suffering servant songs. Actually, the part that you're more likely to be familiar with, the climax song, which is Isaiah 53, and verse 6, where God talks about this servant. And he says in verse 3, this servant, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, 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 that last verse here, is that, that is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, isn't it? You know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in himself not perish but have eternal life. It's the kind of summary of the gospel, say, in one little sentence. Here is the summary of the gospel in one little sentence. Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so here is the, ser- the second Old Testament character that the voice from heaven identifies Jesus as at the baptism. He is the promised suffering servant. Which is what makes this baptism such a very significant moment. Not only is the voice saying a thousand years of expectation of the King of Kings arriving, here he is, this is the one. But it's also saying that lowly, humble, despised, suffering servant that you've also been waiting for? This is the one. Now for those in the moment who had ears to hear, this was an amazing moment. Who would have ever thought that those two characters from the Old Testament would be in the one person? They weren't expecting one to be the two. They were expecting two different ones. Of course, we are less surprised, aren't we? Because we live this side of the cross. And we live this side of the resurrection. But they didn't. They didn't. But it is revealing to us just who precisely Jesus is. And I don't know how much... It's hard to know, isn't it? Because Jesus is fully God and fully human. And you you, you read these parts in these these narratives, don't you, about how he grew in favour with God and men and he 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 had this kind of growing up. And so how much of the plan of the cross was he aware of and 
was it just with him with his divinity from birth or did he learn I mean it's hard to know exactly what it was like to be fully God and fully human no one's ever experienced that but it's very clear from this moment because Jesus knew his Old Testament he knew from this moment on that this call from heaven was the call to the cross that the way Jesus was to be the son of God the king of kings was to use his kingliness to suffer for the sins of the people to accept the judgment of God on himself that this was how he was going to conquer the nations by bringing the forgiveness of sins made possible to them this is how he was going to establish the kingdom of God that will go on forever and ever because he was going to be the king who was the servant king which then brings us to the family tree because Luke having then given us the clarity about who Jesus really is then wants to give us the genealogy of the suffering servant who is the king of kings and he starts it by saying look in your Bibles here, look at verse 23 he starts it by saying now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry he was a son so it was sort of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, and on and on it goes, right? Um, and it's easy just to gloss over this bit here, isn't it? Because all the names, I don't know what they mean. You'll be thankful that we're not going to go through the history of every single one of them. I just want to highlight for you three things that I think Luke is highlighting for us by giving us a genealogy. The first thing to see is that he made a beeline for David. He definitely wants you to know that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. And why would he want to do that? Well, we've seen that already. Because it's one of David's sons who's going to be this king of kings and lord of lords. And so if Jesus is in the line of David, he's in the running. We know from the voice in heaven, he's more than in the running. He's the one. And so if you're reading this kind of passage in your quiet time in the Bible, and you're going, well, what am I going to do with the genealogy? How does this apply to me? What difference does it make to my life? Well, the, the obvious difference to say is, well, if he's the king, is he really your king? That's the application. Because if he is the son of David, he is the one who's going to rule forever and ever. And you will either be under his rule as a loyal, a loyal subject, acknowledging and accepting and actually really enjoying his rule over you, or you'll be a rebel against him. You'll be on one side or the other. And this genealogy is forcing you to ask the question, which side are you on? The second thing I want you to notice about the genealogy is how, notice how towards the end of it, he makes a beeline for Adam. It's interesting that uh, Matthew doesn't do this in his genealogy, but Luke at one level is saying he wants you to know that Jesus is a descendant of Adam. And at one level, that should be obvious. If you're a descendant of David, right, you're going to be a descendant of Adam because you're a human being. But he draws that out and makes it very explicit to us to make us sure that we understand that Jesus is human and fully human and therefore he's not only the king over the Israelite people oh this is a moment of international significance he's the king of all people he's the son of Adam yes he's an Israelite but more than an Israelite he is a son of Adam like you and I and the third thing I want you to notice that what the genealogy does is that very last expression in the family tree where it closes by saying yes the son of Adam the Son of God. Human beings were meant and were made to be children of God. And the one who came 
and we saw at his birth and at his baptism, that one really is the Son of God and he is what human beings were meant to be. You and I know that we are not what we are made and meant to be, that we need to be saved. But Jesus came into this world so that we might be remade to be what we were meant to be in the first place. The son, the daughter, the child of God. So friends, let's draw this together and, and, and conclude. What, I wanted to start that question, what difference does all this make to us and to our church? I want to come back and tickle with you this idea of identification because I think that's where we see a massive difference. It's interesting in our world today how we still have ways of identifying with people. Many of you will be aware that we have things like Daffodil Day, you know, where you pin a daffodil on your shirt so that you show solidarity and support and identify yourself with people who have cancer. Or you go to the cricket or you watch the cricket on the TV and what, they have Pink Day, where people wear pink shirts as a way of expressing their support and standing alongside women with breast cancer. You may have heard of men who have shaved their heads when their wife is being diagnosed with cancer as a way of standing alongside them. You know, we've seen that Jesus didn't need to be baptised, but he chose to in order to identify himself like this. We've sinners to stand alongside sinners, support, help and love sinners. Now, it would be one thing, wouldn't it, if a, to shave your head, to stand in solidarity with someone who has cancer. That would be a great thing. But imagine if you could take their cancer for them so they wouldn't have to face the consequences of cancer. Now, of course, we can't do that. All we can do is identify. But Jesus identifies with us. He doesn't just identify with sinners. Oh, no, he's a suffering servant. And the iniquities of us all are laid on him. And the difference that that makes is eternal, isn't it? And it is an amazing difference. Jesus, he is God, right? He's repulsed by sin. He's turned off by sin. He hates sin. And yet as much as it disgusts Jesus, he chose to identify and associate with sinners. And you keep reading Luke and he keeps on getting in trouble for having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And this has massive impact for us in two ways. Personally for us, firstly. Firstly, it means we need to remember how to draw near to God. You know, when I sin, when I stumble, when I fall, I feel a long way from God. Even as a Christian, I will still feel remote and distant. When I mess up, I find it hard to pray. If I stumble, I find it easier to avoid God. When I fail, I often feel like God just doesn't want to be near me. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. When you mess it up, when you fail, when you botch it, when you stuff it up, you are exactly the kind of person Jesus came to identify with. Don't avoid God. Don't avoid God's people. Jesus came precisely to identify with you. 
But the second application that has deep effect for us as a church and is a great thing to consider on AGM Sunday is I think the temptation we will face in the coming years and particularly the coming decades to drift away from identifying with sinners. See, what's happening in our society is it rapidly changes at the moment is that our society is losing its Christian heritage and its Christian moorings. And as that happens, uh, suffering is coming our way. I don't know if you saw that. It, 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 I don't know how what you watch in the articles and the news. And, but just in this last two weeks, there was a, uh, a Christian, there was a politician, actually a Christian politician in Finland who is now on criminal charges for holding what we would believe to be stock standard Christian beliefs about marriage and sexuality. It's not just tolerated, it's a criminal offence to hold these views. Suffering is coming their way. And when suffering like that comes our way in our country in the coming years, what is our temptation as a church family? To identify with the people we like. Just each other. And forget to identify and stand with and bring the gospel to the world out, out there who so desperately need to hear the news. But it will be hard and we need to steel ourselves for it because that is a temptation that is coming our way. But we as a church family need to so love the glory God gets when sins are saved that we will follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant and be willing to suffer the rejection and despising of the world around us, not withdrawing from identifying with them so that they might hear the news and follow the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's sing that we might, might do that. Let's sing.